August 10. I get my appointment and go loco with joy. It seems to me my reason for existence is explained. All my training and experience seem to have fitted me for just this. Bradford Knapp talks, and I get two ideas. Unless one gives all, one is not giving enough. And if one can go, one should. The other thing was that to our generation has come this great chance for sacrifice. There is a joy in my heart that this has come. Everyone is awfully good about my going away. I did not know how much my work meant to me. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today, I'm continuing a three-part series on women's contributions during World War I, which began in the summer of 1914. There are a few brief references to sex in this episode, so you may want to listen for yourself to decide whether it's appropriate for your children. On April 2, 1917, in a speech before both houses of Congress, President Woodrow Wilson argued that the United States should declare war on Germany so that the world could, quote, be made safe for democracy. By now, 31 countries were involved in the war, from France and Great Britain to India, Japan, and South Africa. On April 6, Congress voted for the war declaration. For the whole of the three years that the war had been raging, Americans were involved in the care and comfort of soldiers and civilians. As we talked about in the first episode, significant support came from American women. Some were already in Europe in 1914 and stayed to help, or they made the transatlantic journey in order to serve. They also served from their homes, collecting food, clothing, and money for suffering Europeans. Now that American men would be fighting, American women's service became their patriotic duty. And once again, women did not have to leave their homes to be of aid. The federal government called upon American women to change how they fed their families in order to help ensure that there was food for the troops. Patriotic housewives could become members of the newly created United States Food Administration by signing pledge cards and promising to serve smaller portions and reduce waste. The government provided recipe cards for Meatless Tuesdays and Wheatless Wednesdays. Posters produced by top ad agencies proclaimed, Food is ammunition, don't waste it, and Food will win the war. The agency was headed by Herbert Hoover, the benevolent dictator we discussed in Episode 1. Now that the United States was no longer a neutral power, official management of the Committee for the Relief of Belgium, or CRB, was transferred from Hoover to Spain and Holland. Hoover's agency was created by the Food and Fuel Control Act, also known as the Lever Act, which Congress signed in August. The law also authorized the executive branch to fix prices, ban uneconomical practices, seize factories, and otherwise act on the industry to ensure that the American military and the Allies had enough food and fuel. When it came to consumer behavior, however, the government relied less on bans and more on persuasive appeals to self-denial and self-sacrifice. Bulletin number 12 of the Wheat Conservation Program read, quote, We have but one police force, the American woman, 
and we depend on her to organize in cooperation with our state and local federal food administrators to see that these rules are obeyed by that small minority who may fail. Citizens were encouraged to grow vegetables in so-called liberty gardens in order to conserve other foods needed to feed those overseas, namely wheat, meat, sugar, and fats. Garden Party took on a new meaning. The Ladies Home Journal suggested that its readers send invitations with the poem, Beg or borrow, buy or make, some gardening duds and bring a rake. Don't worry if you look a sight, we're going to help the boys who fight. The country's 8 million new gardens produce the nutritional equivalent of 142 days of rations for 1 million soldiers. American women also rolled surgical bandages, as I talked about in the first episode, and they knit gloves, scarves, and socks for the soldiers, visited military hospitals in their communities, and raised money for the Red Cross. But thousands of American women decided that they needed to be over there to serve. The Army hired a few hundred women to operate its switchboards, and over 1,500 women worked in the Navy as nurses. For this series, I'm focusing on women who served not directly for the military, but with agencies like the Young Men's Christian Association, also known as the YMCA, as well as the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. Thousands of women worked as nurses for these organizations. They also distributed relief to civilians, transported wounded soldiers, and volunteered in canteens. Emma Young Dixon explained her reasons for crossing the Atlantic in a May 1918 letter she wrote to some of the men she served as a YMCA canteen worker. Ms. Young's letter is typed, and I'm leaving out the handwriting in the margins because it's not completely legible. After a brief introduction, she writes, In the town where I live, almost every house has a service flag in the window, showing how many men from that home have gone out to fight for the freedom of the world. And every time I saw one of these flags, I wished that I too had been a man to have a small part in this great conflict. But being just a girl, the only way I could help was rolling eternally long bandages for the Red Cross. Then the YMCA accepted me, rather reluctantly, I admit, to come over here and do canteen work. I don't wonder they hesitated about sending me, for it's a much bigger job than I dreamed and I feel very incompetent measured up beside it. You know, it isn't only selling chocolate and cigarettes. It's doing a thousand little things that your own mothers and sisters would do for you if they had the chance, like sewing on buttons, cheering you up or scolding you, whichever you need most, and giving you hot chocolate when it's cold and rainy. You don't realize what it means when one has never had any experience to play mother to one of the men in Otreville who was much amused at the idea of my trying to take the place of his mother. And I don't blame him, for it is a rather poor substitute. And sometimes at night I seem to see the spirit of all your mothers at home pointing an accusing finger at me, saying, If I had your opportunity, I'd do better than that. So you see what terrible nightmares I have. But even if I haven't done much to help, you have all been perfectly wonderful to me, and I love you all. Prior to America's entry into the war, hundreds of welfare agencies worked independently of each other. In August, General John J. Pershing issued Order No. 26, which placed the Red Cross in charge of relief work. Almost overnight, the Red Cross was transformed into the expansive institution that we all recognize today. 
Any of the numerous private agencies who were already serving and wanted to continue had to affiliate with the Red Cross since they controlled much of the available funds and shipping space. This caused resentment among some of the workers already in place. Author Edith Wharton, who was living in Paris when war broke out, called them, quote, that blatant scourge. By the end of the war, one-third of Americans were either donors or volunteers for the Red Cross. 6,000 men and women were working for them in Europe by January 1919. It received a total of $400 million in donations of cash and goods, and the military looked to them to provide extra supplies, equipment, and personnel. The agency employed clerical workers, business administrators, warehouse workers, nurses, social workers, drivers, and entertainers. The organization focused mainly on hospitals and civilian relief, but, quote, kept a finger in every volunteer pie. Order 26 put the YMCA in charge of, quote, the amusement and recreation of the troops by means of its usual program of social, educational, physical, and religious activities. The amusement and recreation of the troops were serious business. The YMCA spent over a million francs on musical instruments, makeup, costumes, sheet music, and scripts for performances put on by amateur soldier-actor companies. This figure does not include the cost of professional touring artists who also entertained the troops. The YMCA showed 70,000 movies and distributed approximately 30 million books and periodicals. By November 1918, 44 French factories were producing candies, chocolates, and other sweets with flour and sugar supplied by the YMCA. Behind these numbers were the 3,000 women who brewed coffee, fried donuts, baked pies, and served lemonade, often for hundreds of soldiers at a time. The Salvation Army had a much smaller presence, in the hundreds instead of the thousands. Nevertheless, they earned a reputation of being, quote, very small but very excellent. Not everyone thought that women serving overseas was a good idea. Critics supposed that work in a war zone would be too strenuous for women and that proper ladies would, quote, be disgusted with contact with common soldiers. But some leaders were of the opinion that it was actually essential that American women have regular contact with the soldiers. By December 1918, 18% of the men deployed overseas had contracted a venereal disease. This problem was not unique to American soldiers, but other countries tackled the problem in different ways. The French and British militaries, for example, distributed prophylactics to their soldiers. The American approach included a program of education, recreation, and wholesome entertainment for the troops. Under the leadership of the War Department's Commission on Training Camp Activities, or CTCA, Raymond Fosdick, the commission's chairman, justified this approach in a February 1918 article. A year ago last summer, 5,000 American troops were encamped just across the railroad tracks from Columbus, New Mexico. And every evening they used to come across the tracks to town, just as every soldier comes to town every time he gets a chance. There was absolutely nothing in that town that could in any way legitimately interest them. There were no moving picture shows and no pool tables. There was no place where they could write letters or read. No place where they could purchase a newspaper or magazine. The only attractions in town were a few disreputable saloons and a red-light district, and those institutions were extensively patronized because there was absolutely nothing to compete with them. The American soldiers used to come across the railroad track in huge droves out of sheer loneliness, 
and resort to those institutions because there was nothing to take their place. The CTCA sought to replace those, quote, institutions with programs of athletics, libraries, lectures, and sex education. The programs were carried out by the United War Work Campaign, which included the YMCA and Salvation Army, which I've mentioned, as well as the Knights of Columbus, who served Catholic soldiers, and the Jewish Welfare Board, to serve Jewish soldiers. Fosdick said in a speech that, quote, a woman worker over there is worth three or four men workers because those men are homesick, and the thing they want more than anything else is the touch of a woman's hand and the sound of a woman's voice. Oh, you women of America, I do not believe any women in the history of the civilized world have ever been as idealized as you are idealized by the AEF. Constance Cunningham from Massachusetts was one of those women, and the following is from a letter she wrote about her service. Some of the names are given only by initials. We've had a tremendous amount of work to do in the past three days. We were ordered here to be from Camp V. Mr. K, our divisional secretary, was immensely impressed by the necessity of secrecy and made no preparation for the work we were to do until the evening before. Then gathered the four Y secretaries and the three Y canteen workers into a Ford camionette and whirled us away into the dripping black night. No street lights and shuttered windows on account of air raids, and deposited us on the railroad quay. Then, with bated breath and dramatic gesture, he told us that our troops, the first American artillery, were to entertain here, beginning at noon the next day and continuing on a six-hour schedule, a battery at a time, and were to leave for the front. Our job was to build a little shelter, set up stoves to dispense hot coffee, and make sandwiches to, to serve to the departing troops. All preparations must be finished by noon the next day, when the first battery was to arrive. It seemed impossible to accomplish so much, but somehow we did, and two clothes baskets full of Loganberry jam sandwiches, besides two enormous cheeses, about 80 pounds each, and a great heap of bread loaves were waiting for the men under our shelters when they arrived on the quay. May I never see Loganberry jam again. We've literally bathed in it for the past three days. We arranged for a little group of Y workers into three shifts, and the extra man drove the Ford back and forth from town, for the quiet was in the suburbs, and hauled the water. A cold, dusty barn of a place, and we used old trunks for tables. Each shift was made up of a man who made the coffee and kept enough wood chopped to feed the stoves, or else he pinched some French coal from a neighborhood pile and a girl to hand out sandwiches and cut cheese and bread under shelter. Each shift spent eight hours on the quai, then went on to the sandwich-making for eight hours, and then got eight hours' much-needed rest. The night shift was the most thrilling. When a battery arrived on the quai with helmeted men on their well-packed horses and headed by a man with guide-on pennant, it looked like a medieval cavalcade. All the horses must be gotten into the box cars, and the guns and equipment lashed firmly onto the flat cars in just a certain way under the supervision of an excited and gesticulating French railway official. This was no easy job, with only the light of an occasional lantern, for of course the Bosch knew all the troop movements 
and pulled off an air raid, or rather tried to. The contra-bombardment from all the forts surrounding was so tremendous, as we well knew by the falling shrapnel, that the Gothas turned tail before they reached us. When the men saw our little lean-to, for it was only a tiny rag of canvas tied up to a high wall on one side, and the other two corners held up by insecure posts, which blew down with the wind and rain and wetted us down, with its hot coffee and sandwich and three lanterns, of course they rushed for the food. It must have looked pretty good after a thirty-kilometer hike in the cold and rain. We discovered that to hand out anything got us in wrong with those in command, who wisely said that all the trains must be loaded before any food was eaten. So back the men had to go to the refractory mules and kicking horses, and to tying the caissons and the camouflaged seventy-five and one-fifty-five guns. Finally, all the men had filled up on hot coffee and their canteens too, and had each as many sandwiches and as much cheese as they could afford. And then the whistles and the men fell in. Each battery commander harangued his men, explaining about traveling in this new kind of train, and the how and the why of it, and usually ended up with a good exhortation to duty. Finally, everything was ready. All the stragglers were gotten aboard, and the officers had squeezed into their day coaches with broken windows. The men were forty or so to a little French box car, unless they were fortunate, en fortunate enough to get with eight horses as guards. The French official blew his whistle, and the long train slowly pulled out. We stood on the edge of the quay and shook all the outstretched hands that were thrust through the open side doors toward us. Finally, the last car had passed, and there was only inky blackness, until we turned to our little shelter, where the three lanterns burned. All we could do was return to our bread and cheese cutting and wait for the next battery. Why facilities, or huts as they were called, were not always as meager as the little tent where Miss Cunningham served. But the YMCA brochure advised prospective workers that it was a, quote, constant duty of the women to transform bleak, muddy huts into popular and attractive gathering places. The women attempted to do this with whatever flowers and posters they could find, or whatever curtains and tablecloths they could fashion from available materials. The Y brochure also informed the future volunteers that they would be called upon to, quote, prepare and serve hot coffee, chocolate, soups, sandwiches, donuts, and pies. This sometimes required a good deal of ingenuity and efficiency. Mrs. Belmont Tiffany boasted that they were able to, quote, give them a whole meal for 15 cents, soup, meat, and vegetables, or meat and salad, bread and compote. If a proper oven was not available, one was contrived out of two tin cake boxes on a two-burner gas stove. A fireplace might be fashioned out of stone, sheet iron, and sewer pipes. Grape juice bottles and shell casings served as rolling pins. The tops of lard cans were used as cake pans and percolator tubes were used to cut doughnuts, thousands of doughnuts. As John T. Edge tells in the book, Doughnuts, an American Passion, the first relief doughnuts were fried in a soldier's helmet filled with lard. Salvation Army workers, Margaret Sheldon and Helen Purviance, had gathered excess rations to make the dough, and the pastries were an immediate hit. Purviance wrote, well, you can think of two women cooking, in one day, 2,500 donuts, 
eight dozen cupcakes, 50 pies, 800 cake pans, and 255 gallons of cocoa, and one other girl serving it. That is a day's work. Serving cocoa, pastries, and lemonade was part of the women's, quote, great service, which was, according to the brochure, quote, to bring cheer and comfort into our distant camps and, cre and to create there the spirit and atmosphere and influence of the American home. In the memoir entitled Two Colored Women with the American Expeditionary Forces, Addie Hunton and Catherine Magnolia Johnson wrote about some of the other ways in which they provided cheer and comfort. To this one hut, one of us was assigned and served there for nearly nine months. The work was pleasant and profitable to all concerned, and no woman could have received better treatment anywhere than was received at the hands of these 9,000 who helped to fight the Battle of Saint-Nazaire by unloading the great ships that came into the harbor. Among the duties found there were to assist in religious work, to equip a library with books, chairs, tables, decorations, etc., and establish a system of lending books, to write letters for the soldiers, to report allotments that had not been paid, to establish a money order system, to search for lost relatives at home, to do shopping for the boys whose time was too limited to do it themselves, to teach illiterates to read and write, to spend a social hour with those who wanted to tell her their stories of joy or sorrow. With the cooperation of our splendid hut secretary, Mr. J.C. Wright, we had fitted out the first reading and reception room for the soldiers in our area. Other rooms had been open to them, but this was open for them and others. It was there that our men loved best to go in the twilight and evening hour. How quickly they learned to feel that it was worthwhile to look spick and span for such a cozy spot. It was because of this lovely room with its magazines, books, comfortable seats, beautiful plants, flowers, and cheerful fire that many men could endure the months in which passes to leave camp could not be secured. We should worry when we have a place like this, was a remark often heard in those days, as they quietly discussed the special grievance. But this room became best known for its chat hour that came to fill it to overflow on Sunday, just after supper, away from home and no special place to go. So we discussed it with some of the men and began with just informal talks on current topics apart from the war or army. The interest grew. Men were there from Howard, Union, Hampton, Tuskegee, Morehouse, Atlanta, Clark, and other schools, so we had talks about their institutions and their founders. We had talks on race leaders, on work after the war, music, art, religion, and every conceivable subject. We instituted a question box that was generally opened in fear and trembling, for one could never be quite sure of the questions. It might be, when will you make us some fudge? Or it might be, what is the greatest science? A question like the first we would answer, while one like the second would be respectfully deferred to the hut secretary or chaplain. A cup of tea or chocolate with a wafer would give the social side to the hour. Over the canteen in France, the woman became a trusted guardian of that home back in America. To her were revealed its joys and sorrows. Because of that same loneliness, that loss of background, the soldier poured out to the canteen worker his deepest and dearest memories and dreams. She must be ever ready to laugh with him, 
But she must also be ready to go down into the heartbreaking valley with her soldier boy, when he would get a bad bit of news of a mother, father, sister, or even a wife or child might have been taken away. Or worse still, once in a great while, the tragedy of faithlessness was made known to him. But by far the letters from home were cheerful to have come straight from the hearts of women tense with longing and anxiety. Oh, the pride of a new father! How well we remember the young top sergeant whom we had thought of as a mere boy. He walked up to the canteen one evening with the request that we send a cable home for him. He wrote the following, Congratulations on birth of Spencer Roberts, Jr., and love to mother. Saying to us, No matter about the cost, I want to send it all. How full of love were his eyes as he showed us the girl face of that wife, and we could only say, How perfectly wonderful for the boy when he grows up. He will know that his father was in France at the time of his birth, a soldier in the world's greatest war. Multiple accounts confirm that the men were indeed grateful for the presence of American women in France, and Mary Paxton Keeley made many references to it in her diary. Keeley was the first woman graduate of the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and incidentally, she does have an elementary school named after her in Missouri. Coming down from Dijon to Langres, we adopted seven American soldiers. They had been trying for six days to get 150 miles. Their morale was getting pretty low. We had lunch for two, divided it into 11 parts, to include two Frenchmen as well. Then we played the phonograph, and someone produced a candle, for there were no lights on the trains yet. None of this squad of soldiers had talked to an American woman for months. Our popularity was almost embarrassing. December 2nd, 1918. We had a party and gave away sandwiches and chocolate. Yes, we were cold, but we had no time to mind. We satisfied our ambition and filled them up. My apron was hanging over the counter and I heard one of the boys say, That is the greatest thing I have seen since I left home. A woman's cook apron. February 22nd, 1919. Took chocolate to Company E starting for Potois. William proposed to me. The Major pays us a call and says we have had a fine effect on the morale of the men and that they all appreciate it. We go to town, our first job finished. Hate the ending. Walk around the walls. Emma Dixon talks about similar attention in her letter to her dad. I'm going to read the entire letter so we can also hear about her living conditions. August 31st, 1918. Dearest Father, We've been here now in this rest camp about two weeks. I'm sure I don't know why they call it rest, for the soldiers are drilling eight hours a day. But I guess it's a relief to get away from the bombing and shelling. It's a typical little village, stone houses built right on the streets, hosts of little children playing in the gutter, and old women doing all the work. I've seen only two French men in town, one is the mayor, about 70 years old, and the other is an invalid. I'm billeted with a French family, an old lady and her two daughters. The son was killed just three months ago, and they are very sad. They have given me his room way at the back of the house, and I am very comfortable. 
I wish you could see the bed. It's built so high from the ground that I have to step on something to crawl in. Then, instead of a quilt, there is a feather bed on top. In the morning, I have my breakfast sent in from the Company E kitchen, because the soldiers eat so very early. But for the other meals, I take my little mess kit and stand in line with the rest. The officers have been awfully nice, asking me to eat with them, but I prefer the privates. It's a great way to get acquainted, and if the men see me talking to the officers all the time, they won't come around. Being the only American girl around makes me very popular. I'm so afraid I'll be utterly spoiled when I get home. Can you imagine anything so funny as having them ask me days in advance if they can walk me home when the Y closes at night? It's only a short two blocks, but they always sit a few minutes on the bench in front of the house and tell me all about their sweethearts at home. Last night we had stunts, and everyone did his little parlor trick, and some of them are might good. The YMCA is in a schoolroom, not nearly big enough, so we put up a stage just outside the window, and the men stood in the street. We had everything from accordion to monologues. One man sang, Rocked in the Cradle of the Deep, and that always makes me think of Mr. Milliken. We had quite a time getting the piano for the occasion. In a poor little town of this size, they are unknown. But I heard of one a couple of kilometers away, so one of the lieutenants gave me permission to use a combat wagon, and I, perched on the front seat, went down with some others to procure it. After much exhibition of my poor French, the madame consented to part with it for one week, but only when I had shed a few tears and told her it was to cheer up the American soldiers who had come so far to save France. However, the sob-stuffed work, and we have a piano, such as it is. There are two men who play violin quite well, too, so have lots of music. Then several times a week the band comes from the regimental headquarters, and every time I see him he orders me to pack up. They have a man in the Y there, but they all seem to prefer girls, but I'm not going to move, even for the colonel. I know everyone here so well now, for they're the same companies I had long ago in Valdez August Court. Well, I must go back now and play a game of checkers with a big red-headed Irishman. I wish I could make myself write more letters. It's the hardest thing to squeeze them in, but I know there is so much of interest to tell you. I'm enclosing a letter from William Ferguson. Will you give it to Miss Smith? And the other letter I thought would interest you. With a great deal of love to you, Emma. The demand for female interaction got to be slightly dangerous in an unexpected way. When the Y held dances, there could be fifty or more men for each woman volunteer, presenting a mathematical challenge. As Marion Baldwin wrote in a May 1918 letter, The dancing is almost as humorous. We have only twenty girls, and there are always two thousand or more men. Every time the whistle blows, they can cut in. The consequence is that a girl is literally hurled from one man to another while dozens of eager hands try and snatch her away from him. Of course, it is all pretty rough, and one comes out of it every night with black and blue spots. But how the boys enjoy it. It's estimated that canteen girls dance hundreds of miles each. The YM administration was so concerned about the strain 
that it tried to limit the number of dances that canteeners were allowed to attend. So-called flying squadrons were also devised. These were chaperoned groups of women who went from hut to hut to dance with the men. Dr. Marguerite Cockett worked as an ambulance driver in Europe and returned to the U.S. for fundraising and recruiting. She warned prospective volunteers that, quote, she warned prospective volunteers not to, quote, mistake the interest shown you by soldiers over there. To them, you are but the symbol of American womanhood. They are not interested in you, but in the woman at home that you represent. In the summer of 1918, the YMCA received about 1,200 applications from prospective representatives of American womanhood. The Y sought women who were community leaders, well-mannered, tactful, and talented. The information pamphlet said, quote, she must be ready to labor with her hands, to scrub floors and wash dishes, with the same enthusiasm that she greets the men or plans an entertainment. They would have to be women of some means, since they were expected to pay for their transportation to New York for their evaluations, as well as for their uniforms and other clothing, housing, equipment, and spending if accepted for duty. In all, their expenses would be an estimated $2,000 for a year of service. The War Department set 25 as the minimum age for canteen workers. It was reduced to 23 after the armistice. Initially, the applicant could not have a brother, father, or husband overseas. Eleanor Butler Alexander, the wife of Teddy Roosevelt, Jr., opened the first Paris YMCA, and she arrived three weeks before the so-called brother rule was to go into effect, so that she could be near her husband, who was in command of the 1st Battalion, 26th Infantry, 1st Division of the AEF. Incidentally, Mrs. Roosevelt designed the Y uniform, which consisted of a gray woolen jacket and skirt. The jacket had a powder blue collar embroidered in scarlet silk with the YMCA triangle. The uniform also included a blue hat and a dark gray-green cape inspired by the Italian officers' uniforms. The cape could also be used as a blanket. Anyway, for 10 days, Mary Paxton Keeley hoped that the brother rule would not keep her from serving. July 21st. I see Mr. Pollard, and he tells me he would like to have me go, but that I cannot because of the brother rule. He tells me to do everything I can to get something done about that. I get to work on that. Once, when I was told positively that I could not go, I said, but I know I'm going. And then I looked down and found the only four-leaf clover I have ever found in my life. Mr. Pollard told me if something was not done about the brother ruling by August 1st, I could not go with his unit. I put everything to work I could. They told me it would take a miracle to send me. July 28th, I go to church and pray for the miracle. August 1st, the miracles happened. On July 31st, the ruling was changed. I know it was intended for me to go. Another requirement for overseas volunteers, whether or not it was written anywhere, is that the women be white. Journalist, civil rights activist, and Wilson administration official Emmett J. Scott 
tried repeatedly to determine the War Department's official policy on hiring black nurses. The Surgeon General told him that the Army Nurse Corps could not hire black nurses because separate housing was not available for them. But in, quote, all probability, the Army Reserve could use black nurses if they were enrolled in the Red Cross Nursing Service. The head of the Red Cross Nurses, Jane Delano, said that they were, quote, entirely willing to enroll black nurses, but couldn't until the Surgeon General assigned them. The effect was that no black nurses served the AEF overseas. The YMCA was the only welfare agency serving in France that hired African Americans, and until 1919, there were only three women, while there were about 200,000 African American men serving. As I mentioned in the episode on the 372nd Infantry, comparatively few black men saw combat, and most were assigned to manual labor. For part of her time in France, Hunton worked with the men whose job it was to recover and rebury dead bodies from the Meuse-Argonne battlefield. Many of the black men who did see combat, however, served valiantly and were recognized by the French military. Hunton and Johnson wrote, The colored soldiers were greatly loved by the French people, and while passing through the town of Léon, which had been in the hands of the Germans for four years, the French civilians knelt by the roadside and kissed the hands of the boys of the 370th Infantry. So grateful were they for their deliverance. Nevertheless, as we'll hear shortly, these black soldiers did not receive equal access to the American welfare services, making the need for black women that much greater. Hunton and Johnson wrote that their experience was, quote, constructive and prolific with wonderful and satisfying results. However, service of the colored welfare workers was more or less clouded at all times with that biting and stinging thing which is ever shadowing us in our own country and which marked our pathway through all our joyous privilege of giving the best that was within us of labor and devotion. While there is very little exception to the rule that the colored soldiers were generally and wonderfully helped by the colored secretaries, and while the official heads of the YMCA at Paris were in every way considerate and courteous to its colored constituency. Still, there is no doubt that the attitude of many of the white secretaries in the field was to be deplored. They came from all parts of the United States, north, south, east, and west, and brought their native prejudices with them. Our soldiers often told us of signs on YMCA huts which read, No Negroes Allowed, and sometimes other signs would designate the hours when colored men could be served. We remember seeing such instructions written in crayon on a bulletin board at one of the huts at Camp Y, Saint-Nazaire. Signs prohibiting the entrance of colored men were frequently seen during the beginning of the work in that section. But always, when the matter was brought to the attention of Mr. W.S. Wallace, the regional secretary, he would immediately see that they were removed. Sometimes, even when there were no such signs, services to the colored soldiers would be refused. Of Mr. Wallace, the women also wrote that he was, quote, an executive of rare Christian courage, and that his attitude and opinions commanded the respect of those under his supervision. He dealt with the colored men and women of his area in the same fine manner and spirit that he dealt with all others. We shall always remember him among those fine spirits of his race that hold our faith for the ultimate triumph of the brotherhood of man. 
but sadly, racist treatment was the rule rather than the, rather than the exception. One soldier tells how, after being wounded twice in the Argonne Drive, he was taken to Base Hospital 56. Here, he and others waited three days before they could secure the attention of either a doctor or a nurse. But when these attendants finally came, the colored soldiers were taken from the hospital beds and placed on cots, which were shoved into one end of the room, where there was no heat. Then they received medical attention, always after the others had been well attended, and were given the food that remained after the others had been served. In spite of all this, the authors wrote a gracious assessment of their experience. While there was disappointment in the hopes of many an honest heart, in that there were prejudices and discriminations often shown to the colored race, and sometimes injustices to the soldiers of both races, still the army would have been a barren place had these institutions not existed. The great good that was done gives much hope for the possibilities of organized welfare efforts in the future. After the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Hunton fought for black women to be able to exercise their right to vote, especially in the South. She later became a peace activist and served as a vice president of the NAACP. Since danger and discomfort were not the focus of many of the letters I read, it was easy to forget that these women were serving in a war zone. We have read about some of the more comfortable accommodations, but other volunteers had to take shelter in century-old passages under Verdun, chalk rock wine caves, the ruins of a shelled house, or German dugouts that may have been set with booby traps. Volunteers were often ordered to leave the men they were serving, but, quote, inevitably, the chaotic situation, the women's determination, and the real need for their help eroded the regulations designed to keep them well behind the front. So highly did the military come to regard the women's work that the authorities ultimately permitted them to stay with divisions at Soissons and Saint-Miguel and in the Meuse-Argonne. Meuse-Argonne was the largest and bloodiest World War I offensive for the AEF. It involved 1.2 million American soldiers, and the U.S. and Germany each lost almost 30,000 lives. The number of French deaths is unknown. There's a story about a Salvation Army worker crossing a gully to get to her dugout in the midst of a bombardment. She was carrying a tray of lemon pies in one hand and a pair of new boots in the other. As she struggled to cross a 12-inch plank, a soldier shouted, Drop the shoes! I can clean the shoes, but for heaven's sake, don't drop them pies! Emma Dixon's July 1918 letter also reminds us of the danger to the women and, of course, to the soldiers. July 22, 1918. Dearest Father, It was great to get your two nice letters and hear all about the wonderful work you are doing in the mills. I tacked the little poster on the wall in the Y, and everyone who comes in stops to read. Miss Smith sent me the Midvale button, and I have that there too. It certainly shows the wonderful spirit that is back of the men over here. I wish you could see how plucky the men are as they come into the hospital here. Some of them are frightfully burned with this mustard gas. I don't know which is the worst, the terrible blisters all over their bodies or the burning in their lungs. They all suffer so, and most of their eyes are swollen shut. But in spite of it, they are the cheeriest bunch. 
Maybe you haven't heard the new battle cry, heaven, hell, or home before Christmas, and it seems as if they would succeed. A German officer captured here not long ago said that the Americans had upset all precedents, that when they ought to retreat by all military rules, they prefer to stay and be slaughtered, and I guess it's true. The word isn't in the dictionary. This town where we are now is the last one that the Germans occupied in 1914, and there is a funny little shaggy donkey that was decked up with flowers all ready for the triumphal march through Paris. In fact, the Kaiser was so sure that he would get there that he leased the big hotel in Etoile on the Champs-Élysées so that he could sit in the window and watch his troops swing through the Arc de Triomphe. We quite like it here, in spite of the raids on moonlit nights, and we have such comfortable quarters in this École des Jeunes Filles that I hate to think of moving again, but I fear it will be soon, for we have to go with the division. Of course you have read in the papers about what the Americans have done, and the Poilu told me that at this rate the war would be over tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock. At present, Helen Bagot and I are attached to one of the field hospitals, and it is just possible that we may have to go with them into the devastated district. But we are to go over now and get our orders. I am enclosing a rough copy of a report that we sent in to Mr. Danforth. With a great deal of love to you all, Emma. Dixon remained in France until February 1919. The last of the AEF embarked for the States on September 1st. In Part 3 of this series, we will hear from the women who served European civilians during and after the AEF's deployment. American epistles would not be possible without the libraries and historical societies who have allowed me to share the personal accounts in their archives, asking only that I give credit in the episodes. The entries from Mary Paxton Keeley's diary were read with permission from the State Historical Society of Missouri. Emma Dixon's letters were read with permission from the Couts Family YMCA Archives, University of Minnesota Libraries. Constance Cunningham's letter is from the book The Overseas War Record of the Windsor School, 1914-1919. Helen Purviance's quote is from the book Into the Breach, American Women Overseas in World War I. Marian Baldwin recorded her experience in the book Canteening Overseas, 1917-1919. And Addie Hunton and Katherine Johnson recorded their experiences in Two Colored Women with the American Expeditionary Forces. Music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook follow on Twitter, at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.